Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. In the fifth grade, you know, between fifth and sixth, you're making the leap from elementary to middle school. Students were going on one or two paths. Either A, they were going into middle school just as like, you know, regular students, or B, if they had a lot of potential, they were going in as advanced students. And my my teacher, my fifth grade teacher was like, you know, you are not advanced material. You know, you will not be advanced material. You are always making trouble. And I was like, man, so the year before I had made these, you know, all A's. And then it was in the fifth grade. She was like, you know, you're never going to mount to anything. So it was like a 180. So I get to middle school and, you know, I was living down to her words. I was like, well, if I'm not going to be anything, what's the point of trying? This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me again on Where You're From. Today, our conversation is with none other than the Nona Jones. Nona is a social media influencer, pastor, and author. She's also one of the most authentic people I know, and she brings that to our conversation. I do want to give you a quick heads up. Nona opens up about some painful events from her childhood, including physical and sexual abuse and attempts of self-harm. While her story is inspiring, it could also be triggering to some, and we want to make you aware of that. A quick bio about Nona. She's the Director of Global Faith Partnerships at Meta, that's the parent company of Facebook, y'all, as well as a co-pastor with her husband, Tim, at Open Doors Church in Gainesville, Florida. She's also the founder of Faith and Prejudice, an author, and much more. To find out more about her, check out the show notes or visit our website at whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot So join me now as I ask Nona Jones, where you're from? I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and I was actually born in East Orange, New Jersey. So, oh, yeah. okay. East Coast. <laughs> yes. Got you. So what prompted that move and how old were you when you moved to Jacksonville? Man, great question. Um, what prompted the move? I was probably, man, probably two when we moved. Mm-hmm. My father had recently passed away. Mm-hmm. And to give you a little bit of that backstory, my mother and father had been married for like 13 years when she found out she was pregnant with me. And, you know, she didn't even want to have children. Like my mom grew up in a home where there was a lot of, a lot of violence, a lot of abuse, poverty. She was one of 12 children. And so she decided at a really young age that she didn't want to have children because in her mind, the reason her mother stayed in that situation is because of the kids. And so she found out she was pregnant with me. She cried, but my father was so excited to finally be a dad 
But six months into the pregnancy, he started to have some stomach pain and went to the doctor just to have it evaluated. And at 34 years old, he got diagnosed with terminal stomach cancer Mm. at 34. And I just celebrated my 40th birthday. And I can't imagine facing my mortality in my mid-30s. But they gave him six months to live. He fought really hard against that. And he lived until about two months shy of my second birthday. So he got to spend the first year, 18 months with me before he passed away. But it was shortly after he passed away that my mother moved to Jacksonville because she met a guy and he said he was going to take care of her and take care of me. And so she followed after him. And that's what got us to Jacksonville. Wow. So already there's such depth behind that story. So you mentioned that was the promise that this man had made and what ended up coming of that promise and what happens next. Yeah. Well, um, what happened next was the promise was broken because uh, shortly after we moved, that relationship, it disintegrated. And I remember from a young age, I mean, gosh, I was probably four or five, but I remember just a string of different men coming in out of her life and in and out of my life. So much so that like, it felt like almost like a circus. Mm. (laughs) It really did. At my young age, I didn't know what was happening, but I knew it was weird. But when I was about five, she met a guy got really serious with him and he became her live in boyfriend. I remember I didn't like him, like from the very beginning. I didn't then know anything about spirituality at all, but I just knew that there was something wrong with him. And so I told her, I was like, I don't like him. And she said, you know, give him time. Uh, He'll warm up to you. You'll warm up to him. It'll be fine. Well, shortly after he moved in, he started to sexually abuse me. And the first time it happened, my mother actually had to go back to New Jersey because her sister had passed away. I remember vividly her packing her suitcase and me going to her at like five, six years old. And I was like, please take me with you. Like, please take me with you. And I think in her mind, she was thinking I just wanted to, you know, just go. But, you know, I didn't like him and I didn't want her to leave me with him. But she said, oh, just stay with him. You know, I'll only be gone a couple of days. It'll be fine. So that night, that same night is the first time that he ever sexually violated me. And I remember after it was over, he said to me, you better not tell your mother because she doesn't want you anyway. Mm. And that that is a defining moment in my identity formation, because up until then, I didn't really know that my mother didn't want me. Like I was too young to discern that. I think when you're that age, all you know is your mother. All you know is I want her to love me. And so I never picked up on the cues. But when he said that, I became really sensitive to the way that she would react to me, the way that she would speak to me. And I began to like absorb the dysfunctional way that she would interact with me. There was this one time where she and him were in the living room and they were fighting about something. And I was in my bedroom, but I remember she called me out to the living room and asked me a question. And I answered the question that she asked. What I didn't know is that apparently my answer was the same as his. And she leaped, like, leaped on me and like grabbed my neck and was strangling me. And I think that really kind of typifies the craziness of my upbringing. On the one hand, I was being sexually abused by him, like that was repeated. On the other hand, I was being physically and verbally abused by her. And so at the age of nine, 
I tried to take my life. I didn't know anything about death. I didn't know anything about the afterlife. I just, I remember I was watching like a talk show or something and I learned about suicide and people who were really depressed. And so I tried to take my life, but thank God it didn't kill me. Um, But I tried again at the age of 11 because the abuse was just, it kept going on and on and uh, tried to do it then. Like I still have the scar that just shows how close I came to death, but God had other plans. So first, thank you. There's so many people that you are giving voice to things that they struggle with and Mm -hmm. often maybe even feel like in silence or in isolation. Going back, how would you describe why you chose to go to those type of lengths at such a young age? Like Mm -hmm. what was in your mind at that time? When you are that age, you're not thinking about the next five years, 10 years, 20 years. Like all you know is that moment. All you know is what's happening to you. Mm-hmm. A lot of children who even struggle with, you know, bullying at school and they take their lives, it's because they can't imagine a different life. Like they don't have the capacity. They don't have the experience. And hearing them, it is being mean doesn't mean everybody's mean. Mm-hmm. Just because your experience at work is difficult right now, it doesn't mean it's going to be this way next week, right? Like we have the sense of ebbs and flows and peaks and valleys. But I think when you're that age, you you just have no comprehension of that. And so for me, again, I, I didn't know what death was. I didn't know what was on the other side of death. All I knew is from what I saw, what I saw on television, that people who died just ceased to exist. So the pain that I was feeling, I wanted it to end. And it seemed to me that the only way for it to permanently end was for me to end my life. Mm. And so that was my logic and my reason at that young age, which is also why I will say I have a tremendous amount of empathy for people who struggle with suicidal thoughts and suicidal ideation. Those were the only real two times in my life that I, I did have that experience. And because I had that experience, I know the darkness and the depth. It literally feels like there is no other path. There's no other way. So I just thank God. I thank God because to my mind, there was no other way. What would you say to her? Thank you for expanding on that. So in that two-year period, was that a consistent thought or was it just at nine and then another moment at 11? That's a good question. Like I feel like it was like a periodic type thought, like it it would come occasionally, but it would pass. So like, you know, nine, you know, that happens. And then I'm like, okay, well, didn't work. And when my mother would physically attack me or when her boyfriend would sexually assault me or abuse me after those experiences, I would be like, it's never going to change. It's never going to get any better. And I would think about it. But I will say, because again, I had no concept of God. What really helped me was I would act out in school. I was labeled a problem child from an early age because I had all of this pain trapped inside of me that I didn't know how to work out of me in any other way than being disruptive and, and distracting in, in class. So I would get sent to the principal's office. I would be sent to the corner, made to sit by myself. But when I got in the fourth grade, I had a teacher. Her name is Miss Sandra Johnson. And this woman is one of those angels that God places in your life to give you a sense of better and more. And I was acting out in class one day. Uh, She pulled me out of class and she asked me, she said, Nona, 
why do you feel like you have to make people laugh at you? And I never thought about that before ever. And I was like, well, you know, I just want them to have a good time. And she was like, but Nona, in doing that, you're the one getting in trouble. She was like, Nona, you are so smart. And I believe that you can make all A's if you tried. Up until that point, I hadn't made nothing close to all A's. Like, I mean, I had made good grades, but my conduct was always like bad. She said, Nona, I believe that you can do this. And suddenly she gave me a higher expectation to rise to, and I wanted to make her proud. And so I lived up to her expectation of me and I made all A's for the first time because she activated my potential. She didn't tell me I was dumb, tell me I was disruptive, tell me I'll never be anything. I had teachers say that to me. She was like, no, 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 you're capable of more. And so I think having her in my life is what helped me to really see myself as capable of more. Mm -hmm. But it was, you know, of course, a year and a half later where I tried to end my life again because the voice of the despair was speaking louder in my mind than the hope that she spoke into my heart, Mm -hmm. which is why I also believe it's important that when you are around young people or even adults who are acting out and, and, you know, they're just not, (laughs) they're not demonstrating um, their full potential. We have to speak life to them. We really do, because I think that's what activates purpose and hope in people. And it was shortly after my second suicide attempt at 11 years old in the sixth grade that a classmate of mine invited me to church. And I didn't know what church was, had never heard of it. Mm. (laughs) So when she invited me, I thought we were going to go over her house and play. (laughs) Oh, wow. Tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, sure. Well, it's so funny how God does things. I mean, I had no concept of faith. I had no concept of spirituality when I was younger. But looking back, I now know that my mother dabbled in a whole bunch of different stuff. Like she dabbled in Islam, Buddhism. There was probably some other stuff she was doing, but we didn't go to church. And so, like I said, when my friend invited me, I was like, sure, because I thought we were going to hang out. Well, when her mother picked me up that Sunday and we went to, you know, the church building, man, I remember walking in those doors and the people were so kind and just loving and welcoming. And the thing people need to know, I'm a black woman. I, you know, had a black family. The church was a predominantly white church. I went to predominantly white school, so I was comfortable in those environments. But I say that because since I had never been to church before, I didn't know anything about white church, black church. Like all I knew was, oh, this is a church. (laughs) And so I went in and people were so loving and kind and gave me hugs. And the very first sermon I ever heard, the pastor was preaching, I think it was out of Psalm 27, where it says, God is a father to the fatherless. And when he said that, again, having no concept of God or Bible or Jesus, my ears just perked up because I was like, hmm, well, I don't have my father. So who is God? And I took a Bible home that night, thankfully, because he was in the Psalms and I had my friend's mother, like, you know, dog ear the page. I just started reading through the Psalms. You know, Psalm one made sense to me. Like it just made sense. You know, blessed is he who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the seat of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in it does he meditate day and night. And I was like, meditate day and night? What is meditation? Like it it just, it opened up all these questions for me about who God is and what does it mean to follow God? And within a few months, I was involved in the youth ministry. The youth pastor 
came to me and was like, you know, you have a natural hunger and thirst for righteousness. No, no, I've watched you. I listened to the questions that you ask. And he was like, is Jesus Lord of your life? I was like, what does that even mean? (laughs) (laughs) And he explained what it meant. And he said, do you want to be saved? And I was like, well, yeah. And so around 12 years old, I uh, accepted Jesus as Lord of my life. And I think it's important to note that, you know, the skies didn't part and the birds didn't chirp at home. Like it wasn't like, oh my gosh, now Nona saved. And so now all the abuse ends. No, there was still, I would say more of the the verbal abuse from my mother. The sexual abuse had thankfully ended, but I was still dealing with the verbal abuse. But what was the blessing in this situation is that because I had got exposed to the word of God and, and who God said I was, I started to replace some of what my mother was saying with what God thought of me. Mm. And that really helped to start reshaping my identity. Wow. No, that is, that's a powerful connection that you made and at such a young age to one, just that truth and the beauty behind God telling us he's a father to the fatherless, Mm -hmm. you know, a mother to the motherless, but then also that hunger and thirst for righteousness that was already kind of planted in you. So how did that transformation look like in school or, you know, as you kind of were growing into yourself? Oh, this is such a good question because like I said earlier, I was acting out in elementary school and between fifth and sixth students were going on one or two paths, either A, they were going into middle school just as like, you know, regular students or B, if they had a lot of potential, they were going in as advanced students. And my my teacher, my fifth grade teacher was like, you know, you are not advanced material. You know, you will not be advanced material. You are always making trouble. And I was like, man. So the year before I had made these, you know, all A's. And then it was in the fifth grade. She was like, you know, you're never going to mount to anything. So it was like a 180. So I get to middle school and, you know, I was living down to her words. I was like, well, if I'm not going to be anything, what's the point of trying But my science teacher, my sixth grade science teacher came to me and she said, you know, Nona, me and the other teachers, we really think that you have a lot of potential. And so we're going to go ahead and put you in all advanced classes. And when I tell you the way my heart lifted out of my chest, like I can still feel it now Mm. where to have somebody, to have even a group of people be like, I don't care what they said about you. We believe there's something special in you. That thing changed my life. It changed my trajectory. And I decided then, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to let them down. And so from that moment on, I became a like, top student. I became like leader of a bunch of different organizations. I joined the school dance team. I became the captain of that. When I got to high school, I got into student government. I was elected class president, mm. graduated at the top of my class, got a full scholarship to University of Florida. All of that changed because people began to speak into my life and really activate my potential. Like that changed the entire trajectory of my life. And I believe that God strategically placed them in my life at the right moment Mm. in order to place me on the path that I'm thankfully on today. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Yes. And it sounds like you experienced that really directly. Mm -hmm. And so as you go into college, what was your hope, your dream 
for yourself because it sounds like you've had to had to draw that out of yourself. It wasn't necessarily being spoken over you in that way. Yeah. So what's funny is I laugh because, you know, tell God your plans. And he's like, oh, that's cute. That's really cute. <laughs> right. I, I had decided that I was going to become a physician. I wanted to specialize in oncology, which deals with cancer. And my reason for that is, of course, you know, my father dying of cancer, I really wanted to contribute to one, the science around cancer and curing cancer. But then two, I also wanted to really be there for the patients and the families dealing with a cancer diagnosis. And so when I went to college, majored in microbiology and cell science. And so um, there was an accelerated program that I was going to do that would have allowed me to go to medical school. What would have been my third year would have been my first year in medical school. But I had to do a research project with this uh, old school physician who had been a doctor for many, many years. And he asked me, he said, so why do you want to be a physician? And I'm bright eyed and bushy tailed. I was like, because I want to be a partner in people's healthcare and give them hope. And he looked at me, he said, we don't give people hope. It's about the science. It's about what the, the science says. We tell people the truth. And I was like, man, this ain't for me. So I changed, wow. I changed my major that moment. I changed my major to communications and decided that, well, I guess being a doctor isn't for me. So maybe I'll be a journalist. <laughs> All right. Let me just pause for a second and be like, I hope that man is never a doctor in somebody like no bedside manner at all. None, none, none. <laughs> it's, it's not about giving people hope. Like, uh, actually, I, I, I think I, it is. But, yeah. But, okay. but I will say this in, in hindsight, mm -hmm. I thank God for that man, hmm. because here's the thing. If I didn't run across him, I would not be talking to you right now because wow. I would most likely be a physician doing something like, and, right. and I still love, like, I love science. I love anatomy and physiology and chemistry. And I love all of that. So who knows? Maybe that's going to be a third or fourth career. We'll see. But yeah, God used him to, to get me on the path I'm on. <laughs> okay. So you find communications. Yeah. And how do you connect with that? Oh, no, here's what's so funny about this. I, I love having these types of conversations because the more I talk about the journey, yeah. the more I realize how strategically God has ordered my steps, even when I didn't realize it. Mm. So I was doing really well in the, the degree program and the school had a partnership with the public broadcasting station. So I auditioned to be a main anchor for the school's time slot for the evening news, which is like a big deal. That's like the get. Well, when the results came out and there was like a list of who was selected for what, I looked at the list. I didn't see my name anywhere. And I looked at the list multiple times. I did not see my name anywhere. I was like, oh, well, I guess this isn't for me. So I go about my day. I don't know, maybe a week and a half later, the list was still up. And I just happened to go look at it again, just, you know, just to take a look. My name was there. <laughs> I had been selected as main anchor for the evening news. Mm. Somehow... God blinded my eyes mm. so I couldn't see it. And what's interesting is since I didn't see my name there, I had taken a job as a news director for a local radio station and doing that work actually placed me on the path that I am now. <laughs> and so I, I just think about it. I'm like, man, God literally blinded me to what I thought I wanted mm. so that he could ultimately get me to where he wanted me to be. That'll preach. 
That I mean, that's like falling forward for real. Literally. Yes. Okay. And what was it about this news director position that was a better trajectory? Well, it was not affiliated with the school. It was a privately held broadcasting company and I was able to build a team. It gave me access to community leaders. It gave me access to businesses in the community. So when I graduated from college, I ended up working for a major corporation and a year into that role, They created a job. It was a community relations manager job, paid extremely well. It was on like the leadership team for the the state. It said you needed 10 years of experience for the job. Listen, I had just graduated from college, but I applied for the job. And because of the work that I had done at the radio station and the relationships that I had in the community, I ended up getting the job. Mm. I was not qualified for it. I mean, I think the next youngest person on that leadership team could have been my dad. (laughs) And it was because God put me there Mm. that it gave me the experience that actually ended up qualifying me for, frankly, what I was not qualified for. Wow. That's amazing. And so, all right. So you're in this new space. You're in the room where it happens, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) What happens next? Well, let me first say transparent moment of self-reflection. So yes, I was in the room. I was at the board table, all that good stuff, but I was too young. Like I was not ready because we would sit at that table and review, you know, profit and loss statements and all these different spreadsheets with all these different numbers. I didn't know what it meant at all. And I felt extremely overwhelmed and I started to have imposter syndrome because I was like, I don't really deserve to be here. I don't know what's going on. Okay, hold on. Just for those that don't know, what is imposter syndrome? Oh, so yeah, imposter syndrome can happen when you achieve something that you yourself don't believe you're actually qualified for. And so you feel like an imposter because you think somebody else is more qualified than you. And you end up being like, how, how did I get here? Why am I here? I don't deserve to be here. So that's what imposter syndrome is. Got it. So what I would do in order to really compensate for my areas of insecurity is I would try my best to look like I knew what I was doing. I would make these beautiful PowerPoints because I was a communications major. I knew how to speak so I could stand up there and be super confident sounding while on the inside of me, I'm like, please don't ask me a question. Do not ask me a question. Please don't ask me a question because <laughs> it's all going to fall apart the moment you ask me a question. Okay. And one of the things that reminds me about your book, Killing Comparison, where you are very honest about this nature that we all have to not just think of ourselves in the context of like my abilities, but oftentimes in the context of someone else in comparison to someone else and the pressure that that can put on us in those moments where the best answer might be just ask the question you don't know. But because I'm comparing myself to someone else that I'm like, I, I better just fake it till I make it. Did you feel that sense of comparison then? Oh, yeah. And and the toxic side of it is I was comparing myself to other young leaders, young professionals, young executives who were getting all the awards and the recognitions. And I remember a program in Florida called uh, Leadership Florida. And it's basically like the top executives, top business owners, college presidents in the state of Florida. They're all in this organization. They bring in a new class of professionals that they consider to be the elite professionals in Florida. Well, from a pretty early age, I decided, you know what? I want to be in Leadership Florida. Now, 
I was only like, I don't know, 24, 25. Like I was young and I was like, I think I want to do Leadership Florida because I wanted to have it on my resume. I wanted to be able to say, the youngest person to ever go through Leadership Florida. Like that's what motivated me. And really the source of that motivation was deep insecurity, huh. is the understanding that I only matter to the extent that I'm the first, the best, the fastest. And I didn't have clarity. I didn't have conviction that whether I was in Leadership Florida or not, I still had purpose and I still had worth. I knew what the Bible said. I totally knew what the you know fearfully and wonderfully made and all that but it wasn't what I knew in my mind that was the problem. It's what I believed in my heart. And so much of what I believed in my heart was shaped by what happened to me as a child. And so all of it started to come together. And that's what created the comparison is I was like, I got to be better than this person. Um, this person did this. So I have to do better than them. Because if I don't, then I don't matter and I don't have worth. When we come back, we'll hear about how Nona's success made her start to feel a little like King Saul in the Bible and how an unexpected character from that story showed her a better way. That's coming up next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. Hey y'all, before we get back into our conversation with Nona Jones, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Carvins Lassant. This is where you're from. We did not hear from my mother for a week. Mm. You know, we were certain she was dead. Wow. So we were like kind of planning a funeral, just waiting to hear back. Mm. And I'll never forget this moment. I was in duress, couldn't sleep, was up late at night. It was like 4 a.m. We can't get in contact with any family, with anyone. And my father gets a call. And I hear my father wail. Mm. My father, the toughest man that I've ever met, just weeping. And he comes into my room and he's like, your mother, your mother. And I'm certain. I'm like, this means she's dead. Now let's get back into our conversation with Nona Jones on where you're from. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things you you have all these like Twitter bombs, I call them in your book. <laughs> one of them is what we believe in our hearts matters more than what we know in our minds. Yeah. Take us a little bit more behind the truth of that statement. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I think where that became true for me is, you know, I know the scriptures. I spend a lot of time affirming people out of the word of God because we all struggle with feeling like we're not good enough, like we don't measure up. And the word of God is quite literally a love letter mm. telling us how much we are loved. So we can read scripture all day long. We can memorize them. We can write them on sticky notes and have them on our mirror. And then we see a picture of somebody heading to, you know, San Tropez. And we're like, why can't I go to San Tropez? <laughs> I'm like, why am I not good enough? And so we have all the knowledge, but knowledge isn't enough. And I think what made it real for me is when I was younger, I used to watch the G.I. Joe cartoon. And I remember like one of the characters would always end with like, now you know. And, and knowing, knowing is, is half the battle, right? And I I was wondering, like, well, what's the other half? <laughs> I was like, what's the other half? 
And I eventually realized that's true. Knowing is half the battle, but knowing is half the battle because just because you know something to be true doesn't necessarily mean you believe it. And what you believe is revealed by how you act. Mm. And really, that's part of the reason why I wrote Killing Comparison, because I would read all these books about identity and you know approval and insecurity, and it felt more like theological medicine than actual truth, like lived experience. And so I had to go through the journey and I had to get to the place of believing that what God says about me is true. Yeah. So then I'm not comparing myself to other people because there is no comparison. Yeah. So just going back, since you kind of mentioned mm-hmm. that passion that you had, that focus, the goal of Leadership yeah. Florida. So what ended up happening with that? So funny enough, <laughs> I'm telling you something I've never told anybody. So I ended up getting accepted into Leadership Florida on the second try. So the first try, I think I might've been 24, 25. Now, mind you, usually people are like 36, 37 in their forties when they get in the program. Okay. I was about 25. I was like, I'm going to (laughs) apply. And they were like, thanks for trying. No. (laughs) So, but a couple of years later, I got connected with a woman and she supported my nomination. She was really high up in the organization. And so I got in. But the thing you need to know is that after that first attempt and getting that letter that was like, thank you. It's so competitive. You were not selected. I was literally about to send a letter to the selection committee and basically be like, How dare you not pick me? Like, do you not know who I am? I thank God that he stopped me because, I mean, if we're honest, like a lot of times when that rejection gets triggered for Mm. me, the first thing I want to do is lash out. Mm. Like, I just want to like, no, you hurt me. So now I'm going to hurt you. And so that was a learning for me where God literally stopped me and was like, no, no, first of all, you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Mm. God got me on together. He said, this is a lesson in humility. He said, whether I choose to do this for you or not, does not change how much I love you. The problem is you're pursuing this because you want other people to approve of you. And as long as you want other people to approve of you, even if you get into this program, you're still not going to get what you want. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, all right, God. (laughs) Right. Yo, (laughs) and one of the things I so appreciated about you in the book is you kind of just leave it out there. You write the things that many of us think in our minds, but don't necessarily (laughs) have the courage to say out loud. And one of those moments occur in this context where you develop what you would call like a self-styled rivalry with this other person who was also (laughs) this up-and-coming star. Tell us about that and how that comparison kind of happened in your heart and mind. Oh, yeah. Well, I will say, so some of this is related to the idea of scarcity. And I want to give that framing because I think it's really important for what I'm about to say. So when you get into leadership roles, being a woman makes you rare. First of all, many of the meetings that I'm in, I am the only woman. Layer onto that being a black woman, and that will make it even more rare. Layer on top of that being a young black woman, which makes it even more rare. And so sometimes when you are operating in insecurity, you can take pleasure in being that rare one. You can get to the point where you take your identity in being the young 
black woman in the room of older white men. And that may feel good for a moment. And frankly, people like to reward that. I need to learn from them, pounds, and hearing them. And what I experienced, and I talked about this in the book, is I became aware of another young black woman who was doing her thing and other people were telling me how amazing she was and this, that, and the other. And I started to be like, oh, I see how it is. Like, that's how I started to be. I use the situation with Saul and David throughout the book because I think there's so much to learn, not just from them, but specifically from Jonathan. Like Jonathan to me is the hero Mm -hmm. of that story. But I started to feel like Saul, like that day, that, you know, they came back from battle and the people were like, oh, you know, Saul killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was like, what? It says he eyed him from that moment. And so it was when I started to hear people be like, oh, she's so great that I was like, oh, okay, this is how we're doing it. But what I didn't know is that those same people were saying that to her about me. Like those same people were celebrating me to her. But Mm. because I only heard one side of it, Mm. I was starting to be like, oh, now I'm threatened because there's somebody else who does what I do in my space. And I think if we're honest, I'll just speak for myself, too. I've been there, you know, where you feel good about something you did, something you put out in the world, especially in social media space. And then you see someone else put out something, but it like just skyrockets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's something that can happen in my heart, in my comparison tendency to go, well, I mean, why didn't they say that about me? Or why why didn't they share this? But the way that you name it and connect it to Saul, which we normally, those of us who read the scriptures, see is almost this like monster, Mm -hmm. right? And you really kind of humanize that Mm -hmm. tendency, that desire, that insecurity that Saul really had going all the way back, as you mentioned, from when he was first anointed. He hid them on luggage because he sees himself as small. Right. And the thing I love about the David Saul dynamic, which is very real, but your emphasis on Jonathan was refreshingly unique. So Mm -hmm. tell us about why you locked in on Jonathan and what Jonathan can teach us about comparison and not having insecurity. You know, we've all heard about David and Saul and how Saul didn't like David. And we've heard about that. But I was reading through the Old Testament and I got to 1 Samuel chapter 14. I think the whole story of Israel, you know, fighting against the Philistines is really interesting because between chapter 13 and chapter 14, what happened was it says Jonathan basically attacked the Philistines. And first of all, Jonathan, if you look he isn't even introduced as Saul's son. Like basically he just pops up on the scene. They're like, Jonathan attacks some Philistines. <laughs> you don't find out until later who he was. But so he attacked these Philistines and the Philistines, they, you know, get organized to attack Israel. And the Bible specifically says that at that point, Israel was without weapons. And it was set up such that the Philistines required that there were no blacksmiths in Israel. So they couldn't even make weapons. They had to go to the Philistines to have their farming tools sharpened. So, you know, the Philistines, they're preparing to battle Israel. And what the Bible says is that only Saul and his son, Jonathan, had swords. Those are the only two people that had swords. Well, at this particular point in scripture, you know, Saul was in this place sitting under a pomegranate tree with 600, you know, soldiers chilling. And Jonathan, 
He goes with his armor bearer, like by himself. He goes to fight some Philistines. And he made this statement. This is what made me lock in on Jonathan. He made this statement. I think it's 1 Samuel chapter 14, where he says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Mm. And he goes and he attacks the Philistines. And not only is he successful, like he's successful, he, you know, kills like a dozen or two dozen Philistines by himself. But it was after that, that the Philistines start to run and the Israelites see the Philistines running. And so they all decide, okay, let's go, let's go to battle. And God causes this confusion in the Philistines. So they start killing themselves. And so God is victorious, but he's victorious because Jonathan had so much faith in God's power that he wasn't sitting there with his dad under a pomegranate tree chilling. Hmm. He was like, look, these people are speaking against our God. So we're going to go and fight. Whereas Saul, he would look at the, his men's faces to determine whether he should go, what he should do. Jonathan was like, man, bump that. Hey, uh, armor bearer, let's go. We're going to go take care of this. And so that's what made me hone in on him. Cause I was like, this guy knows God for real. Mm-hmm. And so much so that when David shows up on the scene, He wasn't threatened by him. And Saul makes this really interesting point. I think it might be in 1 Samuel 20, where he gets angry with Jonathan because Jonathan's protecting David. And he says, don't you know that as long as the son of Jesse lives, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. It was at that moment that it's like a light switch went off. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. We keep thinking that David was a threat to Saul. But in reality, David was a threat to Jonathan Mm -hmm. because it was Jonathan's kingdom. Mm -hmm. It was Jonathan's kingship that David was actually in line to take because Saul was already king. So I think when, when that all clicked in my head, I was like, oh, the hero of the story is Jonathan Mm -hmm. because he found a way to secure his identity to who God says he was. And because he did that, he wasn't insecure. He was like, David, you can have my garment, have my weapons, man, I'm gonna pray for you. I hope it all works out. (laughs) And I was like, man, what can we learn from Jonathan? And that has been the blessing of my life. And that's why I spend time talking about him and killing comparison. Oh man, and it's so good to kind of just sit in that story. And you make the statement, Jonathan fully occupied the lane in which God had placed him as the son of the king, his current role, not his anticipated future role. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that contrast, because I thought it was so insightful and even related to what you were saying before about being in that room, maybe a little bit too soon, Mm -hmm. you know, or too young, you know, uh, when you were there. How can focusing on our current role as opposed to our anticipated future role free us from comparison? Oh, man. Well, I mean, oftentimes I think we're comparing ourselves to other people who are who we want to be. And so it isn't that they are a threat to us today because of who we are now. It's I want to be a successful business owner. I want to have, you know, a six, seven figure company and they have that. And so I feel threatened by that. I think what Jonathan did that was masterful is he wasn't worried about being the future king. Like Hmm. his dad was worried about that. He wasn't worried about that. He was like, look, 
nothing can hinder the Lord. So whatever God decides, he decides. And I think having humility, that's really what it is. Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. Humility is just occupying the lane God has given you without Mm. looking to the right or the left and trying to figure out who's doing what. It's like, no, God has placed me in this lane. So let me be excellent in the lane that I am in. And when you focus on that, you don't have time for comparison. There's so much that we have to do in our lane. And then I I find myself in a position now where I can celebrate other people in their lane. Mm. It's like, man, Lord, I would love to one day be a New York Times bestselling author, but that's not my calling at this moment. And that's okay. At this moment, my calling is to put out the messages that will equip your people to succeed and be victorious in life. Now, whether that happens in the future, praise God if it does or if it doesn't, but I'm not going to compare myself to something I'm not. And that's where we start to feel deficient. Yeah. And I love the way you talk about praying it forward. Right. And this is what we see Jonathan do to David, where like there's someone that could be seen as a rival or a competitor to actually pray for their success and, and, and to bless them as opposed to seeing it as a threat because praying and blessing can't occupy the same space as cursing at the same time. That's it. And it gets back to Proverbs. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. And so, yeah, speaking life over people and praying over them. Right. So in some ways, one could say you're one of the most unlikely messengers of talking about killing comparison because you work for Facebook, which owns Instagram. And in many people's cases, Mm -hmm. people see social media as almost the source of Mm -hmm. this aspect of comparison. But I I love to just hear about what that role has been like and what specifically you do with Facebook and how his working in this social media space kind of shaped and formed your perspective on comparison? Oh, sure. Well, so first of all, I mean, I occupy a really interesting role at the company, one of which is I lead our global faith partnerships team. It's a team that supports houses of worship and faith-based public figures all over the world, really to make sure that our different platforms are meeting their needs. So we own Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Oculus and Messenger and all these other tools. And so we want to make sure that they're meeting their needs. And if they're not, then we work with our product teams to figure out how to fix that. And then on the other side, I also support our community partnerships team that serves community leaders in North America who are using Facebook in particular to build community and bring people together around shared topics and interests. Really, I I think I get the pleasure and the privilege of seeing how our apps, how our tools can bring people together in such positive ways. And that's why one of the conversations I have in the book is really about how to make social technology work in your favor. And frankly, I'm going to, you know, spoiler alert. I think a lot of times what we have to stop doing is we have to stop following people and organizations that are triggering insecurity. Mm. And I've noticed that happens. Like we will continue to watch the lives of people that are constantly triggering our insecurity. It's like, unfollow, unfriend, mute, like, Mm -hmm. you know, take a break. We have to protect our mental health and our emotional health. And I will say this though, I think this is important. There's two different types of comparison. When you inhale air into your lungs, you take a breath in. That process is known as inspiration. Because what it does is it gives you life. That's why when when we you know refer to somebody doing something great and it makes us feel like, man, we can do that too, we call it inspiration. 
On the flip side, when you exhale air out of your lungs, that process is known as expiration. And it's the same phrase that we use when we say somebody has died because they've taken their last breath. Healthy comparison inspires. We see people doing incredible things and we feel inspired, right? So not all comparisons bad because we see some people doing great things. We're like, oh my gosh, that's so cool, man. Maybe I should do that too. And it activates our potential. But toxic comparison is what leads to expiration. It's what expires us because we see somebody doing something great and we now feel that their success is our failure. And I think where social media has been a blessing is when it has created healthy comparison. It's led to inspiration. So I tell people, only follow the people that inspire you. I mean, if you go to my social accounts, you'll see I follow very few people. Mm. I typically only follow people that I know who inspire me. Mm. I don't just follow everybody just because people are following them. I follow people who will inspire me and help me to grow and develop and feel better about myself and what God's doing in my life. So I think we have to get to the point where we guard our eyes in order to guard our heart so that we're not just letting anything and everything destroy our peace. Man, that's so good. You wouldn't normally think that someone who works in social media would say, hey, you might want to unfollow some people because usually everybody wants everybody to follow everything, (laughs) but you're giving us that real. So tell us a little bit about what you think is the opportunity in engaging in social media to help be inspired and not expired. Well, I think part of it really starts with us committing to being a source of inspiration for other people. Mm. And then I think secondly, it's important for us, like I said earlier, just to like to prune our feed. Mm. Consider your feed a garden. Mm. And if there are weeds in your feed, like take them out. Mm. (laughs) Just take them out and make sure that you stay connected to the people who are inspiring, who are sharing what fills you up versus what tears you down. Yeah, that's great. And on that context, I'm curious to hear you talk about reframing because in the book you share about how an aspect of inspiration really had a very personal and I guess 14 year now impact on your own life. So yeah, tell us about reframing and even the power of how we can be inspired when we reframe it versus see it as a toxic comparison. Oh, for sure. So for those who don't know what reframing is, it's like a marketing tactic. Let's say you want to lose 20 pounds and somebody just dropped 50. Instead of looking at it like, oh my gosh, I can never lose weight. Look at this person. They lost 50 pounds. You know, I'm never going to be able to do this. You look at them and you say, wow, that's so amazing. I need to find out what they did. I need to learn from them so that I can apply what they learned to my life because that's going to get me closer to my goal. Now you've taken something that could have been toxic, that could have led to a spiral of thoughts of inadequacy and powerlessness, and now you've created a source of power. You've created a source of fortitude out of the exact same experience. That's what reframing does. And that's what I use my own weight loss journey. I was 100 pounds heavier. I thought I would never ever lose weight because I tried all the fad diets and all this stuff, but I began to go on YouTube. This is where you talk about the positive power of social media. I went on YouTube and I just looked for people's weight loss journey. And I found a bunch of people who started at the same weight I was and lost like a hundred pounds and watching their story and hearing them, it became like 
breath in my lungs for the journey I needed to go on. And so they helped me to reframe what I thought was impossible Mm. to something that was not just possible, but something that was going to happen if I just trust the process. Love that. So I'll get you out here on this. If you were to be able to go back in time to that 11 year old girl with that knife to her wrist and could just share with her what you've learned, who you've become in the years that have followed, what would you say to her? Mm, I would say there is no one on earth who has a big enough vision to see all that God has placed within you. So don't allow anyone on earth to make you diminish your understanding of who you are because they can't even see it. With those encouraging words, I want to add that if you or someone you love is struggling with thoughts of self-harm, please call the Suicide Hotline at 988 for immediate help or visit their website, 988lifeline.org. I want to let you know that it's okay to talk to someone or to reach out to a therapist or counselor. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Daniel Ryan Day, Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gussman, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Leah and Nicole for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.